scripture reading this morning. It's a little bit longer. We'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 25 through 30. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23 through 40, uh, chapter 23, verse 44, through chapter 24, verse 12. And then we'll be back in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But standing at the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, knowing all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that he had saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen." Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on on the third day rise. (coughs) And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes all by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning to to celebrate Christmas together. Uh, Let me pray, and we'll go ahead and get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. God, we praise you. Uh, We are in awe of who you are, and we're in awe of what you have done for us. God, thank you for sending your son uh, to pay for our sins, to bring us to you. God, thank you so much for your kindness and your faithfulness that you have shown us. God, thank you for your spirit who works in us, who works in our hearts. And God, we confess that we are desperately in need of your spirit. We're desperately in need of you to be at work in us and amongst us this morning. Would you help us to fear you? and not fear man, would you help us to honor you and worship you and love you. Father, we do love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, let me say uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. You guys all look very festive. Um, Well done. You look great. Um, Whether you're, just like Ron said, whether you're a visitor here, whether this is your first time, uh, or whether you are uh, a member and you call this place your home church, we're just happy that you're here with us this morning to uh, celebrate and worship our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, despite what uh, sorts of messages we get in American culture, uh, we know that Christmas is all about Jesus Christ. Like, if you just take a, a look at American culture. We can see that, you know, media and advertisements, they make Christmas all about uh, getting more, buying more, eating more, drinking more. It's all about more, 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 a lot of excess. But we know that Christmas really is about one thing. It's about Jesus Christ. Uh, Christmas is about the generosity of God. It is about the gift of Jesus to us. Uh, Out of all the wonderful gifts that God has secured for us, out of all the things that he gives us, uh, from life to freedom to salvation, the most precious gift that he has provided is the gift of himself. It's the gift of relationship, and that is what Christmas is all about. Uh, I'm reminded of the hymn, Tis So Sweet. You guys know that? Um, chorus goes like this. 
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, that I may trust him more. You know, we don't sing salvation, salvation, precious salvation. We don't sing freedom, freedom, precious freedom. We don't sing justification, justification, how I trust thee. No, we sing Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. At Christmas, God has given us the gift of himself in Jesus Christ, the gift of relationship, and that is uh, why we celebrate. That is what Christmas is all about. Now, we've been going through a series this Advent called The Gospel of According to Mary, and what we've been trying to do is uh, look at the life and work of Jesus through the lens of uh, Mary's experiences, through the lens of her thoughts and her words that are recorded for us in Scripture. And one thing that her testimony, one, one way she witnesses to us very clearly is about uh, the truth of the incarnation. And that is one thing her testimony, that is one thing her words very clearly highlight is the truth of the incarnation. The truth that in Jesus Christ, the perfection of God and an authentic human nature are indivisibly united in one person. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus, is, Jesus, the son born to Mary, is everything that God is, and yet at the same time, he possesses everything it means to be human, yet without sin. You know, this is not only a beautiful truth, a beautiful mystery that we confess, uh, it's not only a display of God's power and glory and love for us, but it is something that tangibly affects us today. It's something that impacts us right now. now. How is that so? Well, one thing the early church recognized, especially as they were fighting against heresies, is that in order for human beings to be fully redeemed, uh, Jesus had to take a full humanity to himself. They coined this phrase, what is not assumed is not healed. So Jesus had to assume a full human nature in order for humanity to be fully healed, in order for our humanity to be fully restored. So uh, an early heresy that arose was um, that Jesus only appeared to be human. Jesus only had the appearance of a human. In that case, only the appearance of humanity would have been redeemed at his death. Another heresy was Jesus was partially human, that his humanity was uh, kind of overtaken by his divinity, swallowed up in his divinity. In that case, humanity would only partially be redeemed, only partially healed. What is not assumed is not healed. Is that all making sense? Uh, I think about a story in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, we know the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's like the fifth or the sixth book in the series, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a character named Eustace, Eustace Scrub, great name. Um, 
Eustace, uh, he's a cousin of the original four that go to Narnia. And he's with them on their adventure in the ship, the Dawn Treader. And they're exploring the edge of the world, and they stop at this island. Eustace gets off the ship. He's uh, looking around, and he finds this cave full of treasure. And immediately, all this greed wells up inside of his heart. He's so excited at the thought that he's going to have so much more than all of his friends. He's just entirely motivated by greed. So he goes into the cave, he sleeps on the treasure in an attempt to keep it all for himself. And in the morning, he has transformed into a scaly beast. He's turned into a dragon. He's turned into an evil, disgusting, slimy, scaly dragon. And really, this is a picture of what was on the inside, right? Eustace didn't turn into a dragon just because the money was there, just because the treasure was there. He turned into a dragon because that was what was inside of his heart. That was because of the greed that he had inside of his heart. This is a picture of uh, what evil really looks like, what the, the things deep inside really look like on the outside. So, of course, Eustace is alarmed at this point. He uh, goes to see his friends. No one can figure out how to turn him back into a, a boy. He's very desperate at this point. And uh, one night, Aslan appears to him. So Aslan represents Jesus Christ in this story. Aslan appears to Eustace, and he says to him, follow me. Uh, Eustace is quite afraid, but this is what he has to say. Eustace says, he says something, there we go. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing that was, was that there was no moon that last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that, being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me, and, and it looked me straight in my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. Now, despite Eustace's fear, uh, despite being terrified of this lion, he decides to follow Aslan. And the reason he follows Aslan is, is because he knows deep down inside that Aslan is the only one who has the power to heal him. Aslan is the only one who can restore his humanity. You see, church, this is a picture of who Jesus is to us, what he does for us. He is the only one who has the power to restore our humanity, even though it is warped and twisted by all the greed and the lust and the fear that we have inside. You see, Jesus can heal the depths of your soul. He can address the darkest, deepest pains inside of your heart because he was fully God and because he possessed everything it meant to be human, yet of course without sin. What is not assumed is not healed, but praise God 
Jesus took for himself a full and authentic human nature. So before we continue any further this morning, let me ask you a question. What is the sickness that is festering deep inside of your soul? What is the dragon? In other words, what is the greed? What is the fear? What is the lust? What is the anxiety? What is the evil that lies beneath the surface? Church, Christmas is about the arrival of a Savior who can address the depths of your pain and your deepest, darkest issues because he is God himself and because he possesses nothing less than a real human nature, just like us. Now, we know that Jesus did many miracles and a lot of his uh, wise teachings are recorded for us in Scripture, but nothing proves this fact. Nothing confirms his identity and his authority quite like his death and his resurrection. Uh, we read from both John and Luke this morning, and so what we're looking at this morning is kind of a synchronized account of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And Luke, in particular, is concerned to show us how the resurrection vindicates Jesus' words, everything that he said about himself. So we're going to use Luke, really, as an outline, and then John is going to fill in some of the details. So our main idea this morning, super simple. Jesus is vindicated as risen king. He's vindicated in two ways, in his identity and in his authority. As risen king, Jesus has vindicated himself. So let's go ahead and jump into point number one. Now, the, the first two groups that testify to the identity of Jesus, the first two groups are uh, Gentiles and women, right? We see that uh, in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, it is a centurion who notices as Jesus is crucified. This is a centurion. This is an enemy. This is one of the guys who helped crucify Jesus Christ. But at his crucifixion, it says that the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So one of the first people to recognize that uh, the Pharisees were lying about Jesus and that his words were really honest and true was a Gentile, a centurion. Now, the second group of people was a group of women that, that Luke highlights several times uh, in, in chapter 23 and chapter 24. So we have a Gentile and we have a group of women who recognize the identity of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of reasons why this is important, but the main reason why this is so significant is because in the Old Testament uh, order, in the Old Testament religion, in their religious order, it was Gentiles and women that were furthest, they were kept furthest away from the presence of God in the temple, right? The outer court, the, the place furthest away from the presence of God 
in the Holy of Holies. That was the only place that women and Gentiles could enter. Okay, they were kept at a distance. These were the people that had to, they got the worst seats. They had to sit in the back. They had the most mediation. They had the most distance in between them and God. But Jesus eliminates that distance. Now, like I said in Luke, uh, he highlights how a group of women follows Jesus from Galilee to his crucifixion. They see his burial, and then they're there at his resurrection. So you can just look on the screen with me. In chapter 23, verse 49, the women who had followed him from Galilee, we see that they stood at a distance watching these things. Then in verse 55... The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw. So they, at this point, they've seen him executed. They've seen him crucified, and they follow him. And they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in the tomb. So they witness his burial. And then in chapter 24, verse 1, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Who went to the tomb? The women who prepared the spices back in chapter 23, Verse 55. So there's this continuous thread of this group of women who faithfully follow Jesus from Galilee to his crucifixion, to the burial, and then they're there at the resurrection. Now, Luke doesn't really give us a ton of information about who this group of women was, but John names some names. And just like we read this morning, one of the women who followed Jesus from Galilee and was there at his crucifixion, was Mary, his mother. Right At the cross, Jesus charges the disciple John to take care of his mother after he's crucified. So Mary is one of the women uh, who's part of this group that, that follows Jesus. And this is kind of the line of reasoning that uh, people have taken throughout church history if you're skeptical of church history, this is the same line of reasoning that good modern evangelical scholars take as well. So what's the big deal about this? Why, why is this so important? Well, the women see Jesus executed, and then they see how he's buried. They see his lifeless body get placed into a tomb. These women who know him well, his mother is there. She sees his lifeless body being buried. This is a confirmation. This is a witness to the fact that Jesus truly died. This wasn't a hoax. He didn't just pretend to die. He really died. In, as, as mysterious as it is, in his humanity, Jesus truly tasted death. You know, this is kind of like in an old detective movie where people would be brought in to see a dead body to try and confirm the identity of that person. This is Luke's way of saying that, that hey, here's this group of people that can confirm the identity of this lifeless body. Now, these same women who were at the, at the burial, they were at the grave, on the first day of the week, they come back because they've prepared uh, ointments and spices to take care of the body. 
But expecting to find a body, instead they find an empty tomb. And then they're met by angels. And they're quite startled by this. They're afraid. But the angels say uh, in verse 5, they tell the women who have arrived, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. You see, what the angels are getting at is that the, the true God, the God that we serve, is a living God who provides a living hope. Right? He provides the promise of life. And Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise of life. So why are you expecting to find this promise of life amongst the dead? Why would you be looking for the promise of life amongst dead people? Amongst dead things? You know, we can ask ourselves the same question. Why are you looking for the promise of life amongst things that are dead? You know, there's all sorts of counterfeits in this world that provide false promises of life. You know, materialism. Uh, you, you have to drive this car and take a vacation here and wear these clothes in order to really live life to the fullest. You have to make this much money a year to really enjoy life. Right? Politics promises life. You know, vote for this guy and your life will be better. Religious pluralism promises life. You know, believe whatever you want and you'll still have life in heaven. These are all dead things that provide empty promises. The only one who can provide life and life in abundance is Jesus Christ. So church, why are you looking for the promise of life amongst things that are dead? Now, I think we would be missing out on the weight of this passage if we didn't think about it, if we didn't think about the resurrection from Mary's perspective, right? She has just witnessed her son being tortured. She saw him get executed. She saw how his body was laid in a tomb. And then she hears this report that he's not here, that he's not there, that he has risen. I mean, what must have been going through her mind? Are you serious? Can it really be? Are you telling me that it's not over? You know, I've had some heart-stopping moments as a parent, unfortunately. But nothing compares to this. You see, on the day that Jesus resurrected, on the day that he took up his life again, he addressed the deepest, most fundamental fear of humanity. And that is the fear of death. The fear of losing loved ones to death. On the day that Jesus took up his life again, all the pain, all the heartache, all the grief and sorrow that Mary was experiencing was healed. It was redeemed, turned upside down. 
You know, we have this tendency when we lose loved ones, especially if they're young, we have a tendency to have this kind of FOMO for them, like we're, we're so sad that they're missing out on all these experiences in life. You know, they didn't get to enjoy marriage or a family or anything like that. We have this sorrow over the things that they miss out on. And you know what? That's really understandable. But there's, there's just no nice way to put it. It is really something that is rooted in our ignorance when we respond that way. Because Jesus promises life and he promises life in abundance. So where Jesus is, you know what you can be confident of? Life to the fullest. Death is not missing out on anything for the person who belongs to Jesus Christ. For anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, whether it is a weak faith or a childlike faith, death is not missing out on life. It is experiencing it in its greater fullness. Death is just a path to having life and life in abundance. Death is a shadow that passes over us as we walk into the eternal life, the full life that God has prepared for us. So the women go back, they tell the disciples, they, they share this great thing that's happened. The disciples are in the, a state of disbelief, but then Jesus appears to them. He appears to them, uh, they respond with great joy and they worship him, but there's one guy who wasn't there. All right, like we read, Thomas wasn't there. So let's look at John 20 verse uh, 24 through 28, if you're following along in your Bibles. John 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You know, I think if there's one person who's thankful, who's so grateful for Thomas, it's got to be the Apostle Peter. Because if it weren't for Thomas, then Peter would be the disciple with the worst reputation. But Thomas, now he's, like, we just know him now as Doubting Thomas. Like, he's forever known as Doubting Thomas. I wonder if when people get to heaven, they meet Thomas, and they're like, oh, you're that Thomas. 
You know, people down there still call you Doubting Thomas. Thomas confirms exactly what the women reported, that Jesus has risen, embodied. In his humanity, he has risen. The same body that has the marks in the hands and in the side, that is the same body that has risen. Jesus has risen in humanity. He has taken frail, mortal human life, and he has made it invincible, immortal. He touches his wounds. He touches his body. And what is Thomas's conclusion? Seeing the risen Jesus, his conclusion, my Lord, my God. You see, the resurrection proves not only that Jesus is really human and that he has redeemed human life, but it also proves that he is fully God, that he is exactly who he says he is. As risen king, Jesus is vindicated. He's vindicated in his identity, and as we'll see, he's vindicated in his authority. It's point number two here, last point. There's two ways that Jesus' authority is vindicated here. And one is his authority over the law, and two, his authority over death. So his authority over the law. We see this in his words, his famous words, it is finished. You think for a second about what it is that Jesus finished, you'll quickly realize that what Jesus finished is everything required for the salvation of God's people. Right? There is literally nothing left. He said it's done. It's finished. No more sacrificial system. No more uh, merit that you can try to bring before God. It's all done. This is how Luke actually describes the same thing. This is how he describes it in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 45. Luke records, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Okay, this is Luke's way of showing us that it really is all done. It's finished. All right, the old religious order, the old sacrificial system, the old system to come near to God, it has been torn in two. It's done. It's finished. The presence of God, a relationship with God, is no longer hindered. It is no longer limited by this complex system of mediation and sacrifice. You see, in his death, Jesus shows us that he has the authority to determine how people come to God. He shows us that he's the only one who has this kind of authority. The only way that people can come to God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. So look, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter how screwed up you think you may be. If you have placed your faith, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, 
then God has given us the right to be called his sons. We have been given the right to be called sons of God. And as popular as an idea it may be, we do not get to decide who God is, and we do not get to decide how we come to him. There's only one person who has the authority to decide how we may approach God, and that is Jesus Christ. Again, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents were, who your parents are. It doesn't matter what kind of title or position you have. It doesn't matter if you believe that all roads of spirituality lead to eternal life. Right? You don't have the authority to determine what happens to your soul after death. You don't have the authority to determine how you may or may not approach God. Only one person has that authority. And that man is Jesus. So if you have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then you have no basis to stand before God. You have no right to sonship. Now in his resurrection, Jesus not only displays his authority over the old religious order, but he also displays his authority over death. Again, when the women are confronted by the angels, uh, the angels say to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. Right here, Luke is showing us that the resurrection vindicates Jesus' words. It vindicates what he said about himself. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he had the authority to take up his life again. He went to the cross knowing that in his own sovereign will, he has determined that he would be raised to life again. He told his disciples this. He taught them this on multiple occasions, that he would die and that he would take up his life again. And yet they still didn't understand. They didn't understand this. And you know what? That is understandable. Because they had no category for someone who could take up his life again after they had died. Like we would think it would, was impossible if it weren't for Jesus. No one has authority over death. No one could take up their life again after they had died. All right, we can understand their response because death is final. And all the rulers of the ancient world, they tried so hard to immortalize themselves and they failed. Every single one of them failed. They were helpless against death. Uh, you think about Alexander the Great, the greatest conqueror in the ancient world. His title is the Great. Right? So the greatest man in the ancient world conquered all this territory. After his death, what happens to his kingdom? Well, his four generals split it up, and then his family is executed. In his death, he was powerless to protect the people that were closest to him. 
Death nullified everything that he had. No one could rule over death. No one can rule over death except for God. He is the only one who can create life where it does not exist. He is the only one who can call something into existence that does not exist. The power of resurrection, the power to give life, is the power that belongs to God alone. The authority of God Almighty is revealed in the resurrection. And what we see so clearly here in the resurrection of Jesus is that this unmatched authority belongs to no one other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is why we confess that the Son of Mary, the humble King, the working class Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of lords and King of kings. This is why we confess that Jesus is God the Son, who in the fullness of time was born of a woman. This is why we confess that there is no name in heaven or on earth by which men are saved except for Jesus. His authority is vindicated as risen king. In the Chronicles of Narnia, back in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, you know, we, we read that Eustace followed Aslan. He follows Aslan just as Aslan commanded him. He follows Aslan to this crystal clear pool where Aslan's going to heal Eustace. But before, uh, before Eustace, the dragon, can hop into this pool, Aslan tells him that first he has to take off the scales. He has to take off his dragon skin. So Eustace tries to pull his skin off. He tries multiple times. He tears chunks out of his flesh, tries to rip his skin off, but it doesn't work. Keeps growing back. Remember, because this is a problem that stems from the inside. This was birthed out of his greed. It doesn't work. But then Aslan says, you must let me remove the dragon scales. And Eustace, again, he's afraid, but he consents. This is what he says. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone straight into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore, off a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. 
And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been then. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on, and he threw me into the water. Eustace submits to the authority of Aslan. He lets him address this problem from the inside, really. He lets him address this problem uh, of greed that turned him into a dragon. He lets him get to the heart of the issue and the depth of the issue. And the result is that he is healed. His humanity is restored. Brothers and sisters, submitting to Jesus, allowing him to remove the dragon scales, allowing him to address the evil that lies in your heart. It may scare you, and it will hurt. It will hurt your pride, but it is so sweet because he is the only one who can provide true healing. He is the only one who can restore your humanity. Jesus can heal the depths of your soul He can address your deepest, darkest pains and issues because he being God and he being sinless possesses everything it means to be human. It is a wonderful thing to submit to Jesus. It is a wonderful thing to submit to this king. Again, I'm reminded of the hymn. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just to rest in Jesus only and find hope and light and joy and peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I praise you and thank you. God, thank you for the great mercy that you've shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for providing a solution. Thank you for providing healing. God, for the darkest issues that we carry in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, help us to live faithfully for you. God, help us to receive the gift that you have for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.